the subject for this evening's talk is state of one's life. I think you might agree that there are exerted upon us, often externally and internally, tremendous range and varieties of pressures. And these uh, pressures slowly, gradually and insidiously are adopted, uh, internalized, um, identified with and become a means of, through which we measure ourself. And we live in a uh, cultural environment which has a very strong hierarchy of people who we are told have uh, made it, who are uh, successful in particular uh, spheres of uh, interest and activity, and who are able through um, prosperity, income, social standing, to outwardly display those clear, if not blatant, uh, signals of success. And each and every day of our lives, we are exposed, particularly through uh, the media, through the range and varieties of uh, conversations, forms and, and models of what it is to be accomplished in this world, what it is to achieve. And so strong is this message which is generated that human beings identify with it with an extraordinary ferocity. And thus one can find oneself day in and day out going through uh, this life of feeling that one hasn't done enough, that one hasn't achieved enough, and that if only there was enough time, money, and opportunity, one could accomplish so much more. And this voice, as I say, both external and internal, assaults human existence to a perhaps unparalleled degree, bringing metaphorically and realistically nightmares to people's lives who feel that they haven't done enough, haven't achieved enough, haven't worked hard enough, haven't had a good enough education, haven't, 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 repeats mantra-like day in and day out. And it's a wretched, horrible, unnecessary uh, way to live. And one wonders what's going to change that kind of voice, both uh, outwardly and inwardly, and for all the talk in spiritual terms, in spiritual life of an intelligent and sane way of uh, living with some modicum of uh, decency and, and care and uh, reverence for life and some simplicity of, of life to go with it, all too easily we push that aside because we 
find ourselves compulsively driven to prove ourselves to ourselves that we're okay and to prove ourselves to others. And this pressure can have devastating impact and consequences on the individual's emotional life, on his or her relationship to uh, other people, on values, on the sense of well-being and the cost is significant physically, socially, culturally, environmentally. And sometimes for those who live in the cities and who perhaps face it, perhaps face it even more than those who live in rural situations, there can be the kind of creation of the ivory tower of hope of, well, I'm only going to stay in this wretched uh, city. I haven't only got New York in mind here, by the way. Um, I'm only going to stay in this wretched city for uh, X period of time, and then at some point in my life I'll get out of it. It's a, a common enough uh, fantasy uh, people uh, express. And in that, I think sometimes one forgets with city life, for those of you who uh, complain uh, bitterly about it uh, morning, noon and night, that cities tend to have a kind of magnetic grip and hold over consciousness. They are far easier places to get in than to get out of. And that pull, that, that holding, with all the economic and other realistic factors, job factors, etc., that go with it, mean that it's a tremendous act of courage, in a way, and risk and determination when people say, some will do and have that right to do, enough is enough, I have to make a change and have to take a step into something which approaches some kind of sanity in life. But of course, changing our world, changing our environment um, doesn't necessarily mean and indicate that there's going to be any kind of uh, change within. And we often do look at the world around and think, well, if I can change this and change that which is around me, then that will bring a significant change within. It's a rather a hit and miss affair. One may change what's around the job, the marriage, the city, or whatever, but it's no assurance nor guarantee that something significant equally will have shifted within. <coughs> so we're now looking at our relationship to life and the outgoing relationship to, to life and the kind of states of mind that may occur, as was mentioned uh, briefly in one of the small uh, groups uh, today, that when we look at circumstances of change which are going on, then perhaps there are two primary considerations. One is, do I have to change the outer fact, which might be necessary? And where is the spirit and the motivation and the determination for that going to come from? Or do I have to change the inner relationship to that fact? And we, again, where is the inspiration, the insight and the determination going to come from? And what can happen, of course, that in a moment, 
of shedding fresh light upon a situation, whatever that might be in one's own personal life or in the life that you live which is around you. Something is revealed to you, exposed, it stands out perhaps more clearly than before and places like retreats here are for that purpose. That in something standing out clearly, in this case clearly towards change. Then what flows on from that clear apprehension for the necessity to change, what flows on from that matters a great deal. And sometimes there is uh, a sudden awareness of the necessity to change and then what sparks from that is a whole sequence of fears, anxieties, worries and agitations. And the reaction to that sudden awareness that arises can obscure the original insight, the original perception which shows in an unashamed and direct way change is needed. And never, please, never let fear, agitation, anxiety and worry deflect you from that original perception that you see something, something has to change and it's necessary. And one good change for the moment would be to turn that wretched noise off outside, but some things are not in our hands. Well, they should be. So, in the reaction, there's situations which may stand out for you, for us, during the time that we are here. There's the actuality. Can you hear me at the back? We're slightly competitive at the moment. Can you hear? Nice one. So there's the original perception which is taking place and then as I say, what happens in the close approximate period to that? And can we learn and use meditation, the skills, the methods, the techniques, the form, the environment which is here to help us see through that reactivity which may be going on because one thing is we've realized we don't want to lose sight, as I said, of that original perception of where change is and where it's needed. Again in our life and in the mobilizing of our, exist of our existence, we are not very good with ourselves or with life itself, in a way of, perce of perceiving and getting a sense of what the future actually means for us. You and I, we go about our day-to-day -day existence, we, we do our various tasks, whether it's work or study or parenting or traveling or surviving or whatever the form may be and sometimes uh, all of that and even more besides. And there are certain habits and patterns that you and I have which influence and give shape from one day to the next. But sometimes we don't know what the future may be. We don't know, we're not clear enough in ourselves to see the fruit and the habit of certain patterns that are going on which are quite clearly, well, I might say sp uh, specifically, unsatisfactory. And it seems like we can have 
a relatively long honeymoon with patterns. And then the heavy fruit comes at some point later on. I think uh, um, your uh, president is uh, making another half-hearted effort to do something about the degree of smoking that's going on and the indoctrination of, uh, t of teenagers and trying to give some protection to them and, and adults, uh, as young adults and other uh, adults, to the consequences at some point in the future which can be one decade away, two decades, three decades away. One habit seemingly harmless, seemingly, seemingly continuing over a period of time and then, and then the day comes cancer. Painful, terrifying for the individual, for loved ones, for friends, for family, etc., etc. So in our habits which are um, satisfactory, as I say, we, we can live with them, we can be with them, acknowledge them, but in a situation like this, some of them surface. Things which we have indulged in, um, identified with, haven't treated with much care and attention, uh, nor with much res respect, begin to surface here. And in the moment of those that surfacing and something is standing out for us, it may be at that moment a pivotal point which one has to ask oneself that tough question of one's own inner life, is it going to continue or is it going to stop? Is it going to continue or is it going to stop? And there will be junctures, there will be crossroads, there will be meeting points which one is on that critical edge and one has no idea if one has from wherever the resource may come and one says to oneself enough stops. One has no idea in the long term experience of being a human being the protection from suffering it gives to oneself and others because on a point in a retreat one said it stops and somehow one has dug the resources out and said enough is enough. Whatever it is in terms of an unsatisfactory pattern. And what meditation does, it provides a supportive, caring um, and loving environment to let things stand out, not through willpower, not through pushing on ourselves, not through driving the mind into a corner, but through that quite meditative awareness, what's going on with us, what has to stop. And it'd be an extraordinarily rare, rare human being who could say to herself or himself, there's nothing in my life which needs to stop. I've never met one and uh, if, if you do, please let me know. Sometimes there are patterns which go on which can seem rather, maybe, harmless, joyful, fun, um, pleasurable for one period and may change uh, later on. And an example which I've got in mind, I recently received from uh, 
a woman who is in her 60s, and um, she um, told me in a rather long and quite rather um, fascinating uh, letter that during the course of her life, she had had 67 lovers. And it, not many people tell me, in fact, how many lovers they have. So I wasn't quite sure if this was above average or below, <laughs> or below average or, 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 or whatever. And um, you would know better than I on these, on these, uh, uh, on these uh, things. So... As I say, she had these uh, um, 67 uh, lovers. Um, I don't think they were on the same week. but um, <laughs> And she's at a time and, and a point in her life where, uh, as I say, she's in her 60s. She uh, um, doesn't have a, a lover. She doesn't live with a, a partner. She's living alone. And she's experiencing some waves and periods of loneliness. And the mind as it tends to do with these things and those experiences of loneliness, look back to those, those days and those times. And there's some struggle. She still feels you know, alive and energetic and vibrant and quite a lovely, lovely uh, uh, woman. And yet, this is a situation. And living with that situ situation and experiencing as many others do, that there is the outer appearance of ageing as you and I pass uh, through that and just because of the fact that there's ageing going on uh, outwardly doesn't mean to say that it has any direct reference to the inner life. Human be being can still feel as young, bright, healthy as when one was 21, as when one was 65 or whatever. The inner life doesn't have that age factor to it. And so, again, there's a situation of that. It can bring pain, regret, nostalgia, hurt, isolation, loneliness, or whatever. Or it can hopefully contribute to some kind of alertness within us, right? The fact has changed. I'm not as appealing a woman or as a man as I was years ago. Life has moved on, right? This is the present situation that I am in, right, let me live with this, let me work with this, let me take care and responsibility for this. Because the old is no longer having that relevance that it once had. All this part of bringing an awareness to events so, so that you and I listen carefully and attentively in ourselves to what, ar what arises What's emerging? What's the relationship to it? In looking and the and the exploration uh, with our with ourselves, both here and uh, uh, else, elsewhere as well, one of the concerns that one has and understandably has is the degree and the intensity of the degree of the uh, thought which is obsessing. The thought which is obsessing. And it's a strange phenomenon with this, the uh, obsessing uh, thought that anything can be the spark for it. It doesn't need a particular kind of trigger. So for some 
It can be just in the fact of uh, being here. There's nothing um, going on. There's been no um, great um, enlightenments uh, dur during the day. And one has been feeling rather um, um, bored uh, with the situation. The mind has been um, drifting um, out to lunch or desperately looking forward to it or what, whatever. And in all of that, because nothing much is going on here, then one finds oneself obsessing. One didn't perhaps look for something particular thing to say, well, I'll obsess over that for the rest of the day. But that's when well, one, might, one might have done anything's possible in a place like this. But in the movement of the object and the thought, they get lynched together, locked in together, and one starts going over something and over something. And it can occupy all through all the activities. One hardly noticed that one had put any food in one's mouth because the thought was so strong that it annihilated the taste buds, effectively. And when that thought is going on in all of that, whether one is, has done numerous retreats before, or it's the first time on a retreat, or whatever, there will probably be um, a few minor thoughts which disturb the flow, like, um, I wish I would stop thinking, or um, this really has to, have to really let go of this, or um, I can't go on obsessing over this. And those little thoughts will pop up right in the midst of this avalanche of thinking that's going on. They have, those thoughts have no power. There's just a kind of um, momentary advertisement for awareness. But, it's, <laughs> but it doesn't make a, a, a scrap of difference to the potency of the obsessing thought. And there's just um, enough variations in the nightmare that's taking place in, in the thinking that justifies its continuity. So that one kind of has a belief that if I go on thinking and thinking and thinking uh, long enough, um, either the thought will get exhausted or oneself will get totally um, exhausted. It's usually the latter. And then one goes to sleep, usually on the meditation cushion, and then the thought starts up uh, yet again. Somebody commented, because it's so frequent, that it seems to be a waste of time. Well, one could look at it. That is a rather positive way of looking at it. And I think it's a complete waste of one's existence. It's a loss of one's existence. And one has become spellbound to the tendency and the propensity to be trapped in the field of thought as the ultimate reality. Because that's what it's become in obsessional, in obsessional thinking. It's become one's ultimate reality because one can't see anything else but that. And it's no easy undertaking in which, in a way, one doesn't even take any notice of the thought which says, I must stop this thinking. Because it, the thought has no power over the thought. It doesn't have the capacity because it belongs to that stream there. What's going to 
shake us out of that compelling thinking. And it's a kind of combination in the process that's going on, both of the, the force of the tendency and the object of interest. And the combination of the force of the tendency and the object of interest produces this intensity which is going on and it's something telling us something about the way we live our life. We approach too many things in life, too much in life, with too much intensity. We're finding ourselves living, goes back to all the pressures I spoke of earlier on, thinking that things are incredibly important and one has to achieve and one has to succeed and one has to get what one wants and one's got to keep pursuing it and going after it, etc. and going into debt for it in some cases or whatever it might be. And that way of living has to be reflected and manifested in the inner life which shows the same kind of intensity when the thoughts at work. People who live and think in terms of intensity of life and pressure of life tend to think similarly, inwardly, in obsessive, compelling thinking because it's a statement of the outer. And it's reached such a point, such an unsatisfactory point in people's lives that people become afraid to live an easier life. Afraid to have a more kindly view towards themselves and existence. Afraid to take things more softly and quietly and gently with the flow of things. Because when the person begins to do that, that mindset then resurrects itself mercilessly and says, I'm not doing enough, I should be doing more and therefore join the collective neurosis. If we wish to live some sanity with our inner life, surely we have to also, and correspondingly, live with a sanity in our outer life as well, and trust in that, instead of this compelling, driven, running, pursuing, after whatever form it might take. Thus some people on retreats come regularly to facing that and say to themselves, what has to stop? What has to change? What is going to genuinely bring a more relaxed view towards existence? And a more relaxed view towards one's own existence has become almost revolutionary in the kind of compelling society that we live in. In retreat climate and in being here in our days uh, here here together, I had mentioned in the uh, talk yesterday evening that these situations are intended to give much kindness and care and support to each person who participates uh, in in the retreat. And in that uh, general 
uh, atmosphere of warmth and kindness is very important. And someone had um, mentioned um, to me today that um, there may be um, a note in the, with regard to the general guidelines that go out to people about um, no eye contact. I'm not, I can't recall seeing these, uh, uh, the guidelines that um, IMS send out. But certainly in some retreats and some uh, teachers put this emphasis out uh, quite strongly and do regard um, meditation, insight meditation and the, the seriousness uh, that goes with it. This um, place is sometimes called the boot camp of meditation centers that uh, there shouldn't be any kind of uh, eye uh, contact. But us, the three of us, uh, Shada, Jose and I, um, don't subscribe uh, uh, to this. So some of the guidelines like that one can, I uh, think, uh, ignore. But in um, uh, saying that, that during the time of uh, being here, again, there can be momentary, uh, longer eye contact which takes, takes place. And obviously when people are... Um, coming in out of the meditation hall, passing each other in the corridor, taking a food, or whatever it might be that can occur. And for some, that generates, might be to a friend, a, 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 a partner, or somebody else, um, a warm response. But the eye contact which uh, takes place doesn't necessarily assure and guarantee in any way that one's going to be reciprocated in the same way. And I much prefer a uh, natural ebb and flow of circumstances. And in that uh, eye contact or any other kind which uh, takes place, to see what the mind does. And sometimes some person can give a momentary smile and then the other person um, looks like a, 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 a block of ice. And that's saying it rather kindly. And therefore the one who the smile has come from, what does she or he do with that? And similarly, in other situations, communication can take place. And just on a smile, um, the other person starts a... Uh, intensity of r romantic uh, love affair um, which put, would put Romeo and Juliet to shame. So again, in contact, in momentary events which uh, take place, what one does uh, with contact, with communication, whether small group or in the hall or those um, passing events which uh, which take place. And I mention all this because um, sometimes I have uh, um, 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 wondered whether I'm running retreats or partner-forming agencies. And um, I think it leans as much towards the latter as towards the, the former there, as some of you in here know. And in that, as say, there's contact. Pleasant feeling, neutral feeling, unpleasant, or whatever it might be. Normal events. What does one do with the event? Sometimes what we do with the event matters much more than the event. What we do with the raw material of life 
matters immensely. And somehow we've got to reconnect and connect and reconnect with this world in it and give it the attention and the respect and the connection that it deserves and to be implicitly connected in such a way that we're extraordinarily vigilant of what we do with the raw material of life, what goes on in the mind from the moment of contact. We need to address that very, very carefully as a genuine and authentic human duty to address what we do with the raw material that comes to our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, what we do with the experience or the uh, thought or whatever that arises in the moment, what do we make of it? And the well-being, the sanity, the peace, the contentment, and the joy of life depends on what we do with that which we are exposed to. And we have an opportunity here, morning, noon and night, to really give care to that. So that we can begin to understand what it is to have insights into life. What letting go is, what accommodating is, what is being aware of and saying enough is enough, what stopping is, what a relaxed view of life is, what an enlightened and awakened life is all about. And the practices and the teachings and the cooperation together make all of that very, very possible in this situation. And the initial step to that is, of course, bringing awareness to life. To live with awareness. And we are willing to genuinely live with awareness. Everything is possible. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the conditions of existence. May all beings live with joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.